This week we're going again to, uh, <laughs> I was going to say First Corinthians, Matthew. Matthew. So would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, reading verses 1 to 9. I forgot to thank him for the brie, the barbecue. I didn't remember that. And pickup trucks. Pickup trucks. Can't forget that. Let's read the word of God. First Corinthians, Matthew 13. Yeah, I've got preliminary stages of something. All right, here we go. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil, and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then down to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. This is the word of the Lord. So last week we began to study this. We went through the first two seeds, but let's go back and let's remember a few of the things that this scripture is teaching us. Number one, uh, Jesus was at the height of his popularity. Um, he went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and there were so many people around that the only way he could get distance from them was for him to get in a boat and go out, and the people didn't want to get wet, and so they would have stayed on the beach and he would have had some separation. And if, if, you, if you realize that uh, water carries sound well, he could have got, been out a little ways and it would, have, it would have been easier for people to hear him. He wouldn't have been muffled because he had people all around him. All right. The point is that he's at the height of his popularity. He's so popular that he gets up, leaves the home, goes out to the beach. Scads of people are there. But Jesus, being God, knows that those people are going to leave him soon. And he knows that his disciples are weak of faith. 
if, if you read, he's constantly confronting them with the weakness of their faith and rebuking them because of the weakness of their faith. And so he wants to warn them ahead of time of something that's going to happen, which is that everybody's going to leave him. And so he tells this parable as a way of saying, look, you know, all the seed that's going out here that seemingly is producing so much other uh, growth, it's actually not going to take, so get ready. You know, people are going to fall away. Not all the growth that you see here is real growth. Or I should say fruitful growth. Some of us, George, want fruitful tomatoes so much that we actually go through our tomato plants and we, we pinch off all the suckers. Because we know that those suckers growing up in between the branches are not going to produce fruit. All right, And you know what Jesus says in John 15. He says that the branch that's fruitless is cut off and thrown into the fire. When I came to Bloomington, um, I served another church. And at that church, they had a ton of crab apple trees. And every single one of those crab apple trees had, had been let go completely. And so every single one of them had what are called water spouts. Or every one of them had about a 200 vertical shoots coming out at every point along the branch, you know, boom, 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 boom. And I was just so disgusted by them not caring for those trees because to people driving by, it was an indication of the condition that the church was in. And so finally, one day, a repressed gardener went out there with his uh, pruning things, and, uh, and I cut all those unproductive shoots off. They're gone, right? And so if you look at Jesus, he's sending out sap all the time, or according to the parable, he's casting out the seed all the time. And lots of sprouts are coming up. But some are going to produce fruit, and some aren't. And even among those that are going to produce fruit, some of them are going to produce a little fruit at the very beginning, and then they're going to die because they don't have any root. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, what? He's saying to the disciples, behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And when he explains this first one, he says, hear then the parable of the sower, verse 18, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, which would be Satan, the devil, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And so the problem is with this first kind of seed, they don't understand it. Now, if you're a good uh, school of education graduate, what you know is that nobody should ever be disciplined for not understanding. The only bad question is the unasked question, right? But here, when Jesus says that Satan snatches the seed away because it's not understood, nobody wants to be the seed that doesn't grow because Satan snatches it away. Nobody wants to be the soil that the seed is gone from because he didn't understand, right? We all want to understand. I mean, that's the whole point of the parable, right? And so what would it be that would cause us not to understand? 
What is it that causes you to not understand my preaching? Huh? Which is what? Yeah, I think that that's probably the biggest one is hardness of heart. And so if our hearts are hard, resistant to the preaching of God's word, then either we are... Uh, beyond hope, or we should focus on what makes our hearts hard and try to soften them, right? One of the things that could keep us from understanding also is simply, simply sleep, needing sleep. You know, you don't think of this, but what time you go to bed on Saturday night is connected with whether or not you're in heaven. You don't think of it that way, But I always tell people when they apologize for sleeping, I always say to them, I I don't notice you're sleeping. The only people I notice are sleeping sometimes are Carol Canfield and and Bob. And I always love it when Bob's men who love him uh, wake him up. Because I think there's, there's no sweeter indication of love for Bob than waking him up during the preaching of the word, right? I mean... Compared to that, everything else you do is insignificant, right? But most of you, I don't, I don't see when you sleep. And the reason is that I served up in Wisconsin with a bunch of farmers. And honestly, all through winter, all the farmers slept. That's what they did. And the reason is in Wisconsin, you have a season called winter. Here we have a season called spit. You know, this is it's never winter here. It's just like sort of drools in a cold way, <laughs> you know. I was so frustrated last year. I bought a new snowblower, and I didn't get to use it. And I'm still a little bit hostile about that. <laughs> and so they would be out milking very early in the morning. Then they'd come to church, and it had been cold when they were milking. And then they come into church, and it's very warm, and they just sleep. And I always felt warm and benevolent towards their sleep. I felt like I had some role to, to claim in that, you know, <laughs> that my preaching and, and the temperature and everything about it just was conducive to, you know, sleep. Sleep is a moral category. Ben Franklin said, Early to bed and early to rise makes a man godly. Is that what Ben Franklin said? Not when he was in Paris. And so it could be sleep, what time we go to bed at night. It could be resentment at our husband. There are many women who will not listen to the preaching of the word because it comes from a man and their husband is a man. And one of the cartoons I have in my file that my wife and I both love is a wife saying to her husband, honey, you're a man, and therefore I can never fully approve of you. (laughs) But you think it's bad listening to a man. I hate to tell you what the men here would do if they were listening to a woman. So just go ahead and subject yourself to it being a man. That was God's intent, and it is nasty, and men feel sorry for you. But maybe in heaven you'll get to listen to women. Oh, man. 
Okay. So it can be that I'm a man. It can be that I'm a sinner. You can look at me and judge me because I'm proud. And you can say I will not humble myself to be fed the word of God by a proud man. And hear me when I say this. I guess you showed them. I mean, you get my point. You know, so, like, do you think you've had a thought? Preacher, proud. You know, PR, PR. Right? So, if you will not be taught the word of God, will not understand the word of God when it's sowed in your heart because the preacher is proud, you're a fool. You're a fool because you're cutting off your soul to spite your pride or his pride or whatever. It may be not that you're sleepy. It may be not that you're resenting me being a man, not that you're resenting my pride or whatever other sin you want to point to. It may be because you are culturally committed to relativism. You're one of these world-weary souls who is so far beyond truth. Because you would say everything is a function of your perspective. And so you've inoculated yourself against any claim of truth. You're you're the kind of person that's so astute that you're able to say that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are the same thing. It's like, really? (laughs) And so the preacher getting up is just like Hugh Hefner, but on the other side of the chasm. You know, he has his principles that give him money. Hugh Hefner has his that give him money. You say, well, not Hugh Hefner. I say, okay, name it. You know, you want to cite a philosopher. You want it to be whoever it is that's on the other side of what they preach from the pulpit in the church that allows you to exist in that glorious middle where every postmodern wants to sit without having to make any commitments or take any risks. Okay? And can't you just see how postmodernism is the perfect, perfect, perfect scheme to keep the word of God from ever lodging in your heart, germinating and bearing fruit? You say, well, I'm a man in a day that hates men. And so you can just feel sorry for yourself. You remember... Probably about nine months ago, I read some of what I'm writing, and I read about the man who was in his mid-50s and, and was going into his old age complaining about how his mother didn't love him. Now, that wasn't what he was actually complaining about. There were other things that I don't want to mention, but he was just constantly portraying himself as a victim, filled with bitterness. And in his 50s, Can you imagine being in your 50s and being filled with bitterness? It's so pathetic. I'm a victim. I can just imagine him in his grave crying out as we walk away. I'm a victim. Why now? Because I'm dead. It's so awful. And we all know that that is America today. All of us are victims. 
And so you sit in church and you're a victim. And so being a victim is perfect because you never have to have zeal. Why would anybody expect a man who's a victim to have zeal? (laughs) The two are antithetical. (laughs) How can you be a victim and have zeal? Well, actually you can. Zeal in bitterness because you're a victim. Very zealous victim. Poor pitiful me. Eeyore is zealous. Listen, there are all kinds of ways that you are resistant to the word of God. You're resistant. You will not allow the seed to take root. And so Satan snatches it away. And he's happy for you to be a victim if that keeps the word of God from germinating and growing. Hmm. You remember last time I preached that I said that parables are a joke. Remember that? And my wife afterwards, being a good wife, corrected me. She said, don't say parables are a joke. And I knew what she was thinking. My wife is always helpful, and it really does get to be a bit much. (laughs) I want to be a free spirit out there at the edge of the ozone, you know, and my wife yanks me back to the earth all the time. Okay, all right, parables are not a joke. You happy, love? Okay. But here's what I mean to say. Parables are a joke in that jokes are actually very serious things, right? If I tell certain jokes to you, you ought to be insulted, right? Because some jokes when I use with you, like for instance, if, if I look at you and you're a woman and I say, do you know how many feminists it takes to change a light bulb? I'm making a point. I Trust me. You know how many feminists it takes to change a light bulb? Yep. (laughs) And it's the perfect joke because nothing she does will help. If she laughs, she's admitting it's funny. And if she doesn't laugh, it's not funny. And so when Jesus tells, all right, not jokes, but parables with a punchline, every single time what he's doing is he's reinforcing the fact that every one of you has a choice as to what kind of soil you're going to be when the word of God is preached to you. And that's the reason that he says, let him who has ears to hear. Hear. It really irritates me that Calvinism is humorless and alcoholless and tobaccoless and serious. Because Jesus, when he taught, was not serious. And the Apostle Paul, when he wrote letters, was not serious. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there's a very well-known section by Kierkegaard where Kierkegaard talks about the Apostle Paul, and he says, and he's 
you know, he's, it's a dialectic, and he says, uh, was Paul a serious man? Paul was not married. No, Paul was not a serious man. Was Paul a serious man? No, he had no children. Well, the apostle Paul was not a serious man. Did the apostle Paul have a nice house? No. Well, the apostle Paul wasn't a serious man. And so that's the way I'm using serious, you know, as the world sees it. As the world saw Jesus, he wasn't a serious man. He had no desire to be a political leader. But he was a king. (laughs) How does that work? (laughs) You know? How does it work that he didn't have a wife, and he didn't have children, and he had no place to lay his head? I mean, he's not... He's not a serious man. And so he goes around telling stories. And, and, and that, of course, that, that indicates he's not a serious man. I mean, come on, be honest today. Would he have any pulpit of a Presbyterian church today? Any Dutch reform pulpit? No, because he told stories. He didn't give didactic USB 3 downloads, you know, Sovereign providence, sovereign providence, election, sovereign providence, sovereign providence, election, 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 election. Sovereign providence, sovereign providence. No intinction, sovereign providence, sovereign providence. (laughs) Let him who has ears to hear. He told stories, and then he gave everybody freedom of choice. And he gave them warnings as they made their choices. And the warnings were, a sower went out to sow his seed. And some of the seed fell by a path. And that's the seed where it can't find a place to lodge, and the birds come along and pick it up, because the person that the seed was sown into did not have understanding. And I want to say today, in a postmodern age, was resistant to understanding. Because we're so world-weary that we know understanding is a myth and a vapor, except with math. There it's solid. But in all things spiritual, and this is the reason why when you read science fiction, as C.S. Lewis said, all the physical laws stay the same, but all the spiritual laws change. How does that work? The physical laws are certain across the universe, all space, universals, but then the spiritual laws, culture to culture, time to time, you know, galaxy to galaxy, they just get all different, 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 you know? Well, it's because we're inoculated against spiritual truth. So I went out. And Jesus gets done telling that one. He's, he's, If you have ears to hear. What Jesus didn't do is Jesus did not walk up to you and grab you by the hair behind your head and dunk your face in the Sea of Galilee. Or, as some people would say it, he did not sew his points on with an iron thread. He gave you freedom of choice. He gave you free will. (laughs) And you go, oh, wait a second. 
We don't ever speak of free will. I say, okay, so what would you characterize, let him who has ears to hear, hear, as? No free will? Sounds to me like he's recognizing that every man will make his choice. (laughs) And you say, yeah, but don't use the word free. That's what David Wagner would say if he's here. I say, okay, you have will. Or should I just say you have we? Jesus knows that every single one of us sitting under the preaching of the word makes our choices. And he's saying, okay, four, four things. The first one, now the second one. The second one is the seed that falls on top of soil that has rock right underneath. So it can't send its roots down. And so, because the rock warms up the soil, it germinates instantly. And did you notice the phrase, the prepositional phrase that's there? Did you notice that? With joy. Did you notice that with joy? And that's so disconcerting to us. It makes us so uneasy for Jesus to talk about the seed of the word of God of preaching that goes out and is received with joy because what we're convinced of is nothing is a more certain indicator of true spiritual life than, 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 than an emotion. And when the emotions bubble up, then we know that we have sincerity because we live in a post-romantic age. You know, and so we look at ourselves from outside and we see emotions and we think, well, certainly that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says that that seed was received with joy. Remember how last week I said that you should be able to name by name, by ministries, by churches, by pastors, you should be able to name who are the pastors that seek for the seed that falls on the hard path and that gets picked off? In other words, the preachers that are opposed to understanding. Opposed to understanding. You say, well, certainly no preacher is opposed to understanding. I say, oh, listen again. Many, many preachers who are opposed to any understanding on the part of their people. All right. You also need to see preachers who are opposed to any depth of root. Now listen, I'm 58. I keep telling you this. And so I have the freedom to do some things that young men would never do. And, and here's what I'll tell you. I've had campus crusade people in my church who have told me, explicitly told me, that crusade is committed to living in that initial period of time where someone is either right before they become a Christian or right after. And that that is their principle. Their principle is to stand at the door. And if any of you have any knowledge of evangelicalism's history of the last century, you know that there's a famous poem by the guy that started Alcoholics Anonymous, Shoemaker, that is titled... I stand at the door. And that poem is a poem talking about how other people may go deeply into the house, 
but not me. I stand at the door. And the whole way the poem presents it is that to stand at the door is an act of humility. All right? Because you're not desiring deeper things of God. You're very content to be where the traffic passes and to always stay there. And so if you look at the Billy Graham Crusades, if you look at Campus Crusade, if you look at ministry after ministry after ministry, they all stand at the door. Okay? And what they say is, look, we'll lead people to Christ and then we'll send them to Reformed churches. All right? So after you become a Christian, then... We'll use you to lead campus Bible studies for a couple of years, but then when you get out of the campus, then it's time to be discipled. All right? Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that when you live at the place where the soil is only this deep, the minute persecution comes, you you fall. Because you consciously make a decision not to develop roots in anybody. And if somebody starts to put down roots, you try to save them, but then maybe you'll lose them to Clear Note Church. And it's sad because now they're putting down roots, and so they're not evangelistic anymore. But of course, that begs the question of what true evangelism is. Is true evangelism making a big show about rootless germination? How could anybody have a desire to have healthy, fruitful plants and intentionally want to live where the soil doesn't allow roots to go down. I mean, it's just crazy. Jesus said, go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them, so there you're talking about the initial germination, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded. So he didn't say to the disciples, you guys stand at the door and baptize, and then we'll pass them off to the Presbyterians to teach them everything he commanded. I mean, how have we gotten to the point where all the money of the people of God is given to people who consciously have a commitment to not have roots? (laughs) It's, It's insanity. Now, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, then what we'll see is as the persecution grows, all right, their converts will stand. But for me to say it is laughable. If you consciously go around you know, trying to cultivate plants that have no root and make a big show of the joy, are you with me? It was received with joy. Look at the joy. Look at how many people walked forward in the crusade. The joy of it. Jesus is saying there's joy. And we look at the joy and say, well, that's all we need to see. And we write out another check. And we say, you know, I I like to live where the joy is. I like to give money where the joy is. I like to be a part of churches where the joy is. It's like, shoot me dead. It's crazy. Jesus said what? That seed does germinate, does grow, 
there's joy. But the minute persecution comes, the minute trials and tribulations come, it dies. And so again, if you say, no, 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 Billy Graham, that's not what that is. I say, okay, come up with another name. Because you can bet your booties that there are ministries that specialize in joy. I mean, isn't Joyce Meyer, what's the name of her ministry? Isn't there some woman's ministry that's called something joy or something? What is it? Maybe I'm just getting confused because her name is Joyce. (laughs) That may be it. All right, so that's the second seed. Are you with me? The first seed is the soil is compressed and it can't find a place to grow. And this is those who are committed to not having understanding. All right? The second seed is seed that is put into soil that's very thin, and so the seed receives it with joy. But the minute trials and tribulations and persecution come along, it dies. Are you with me? Okay? So not all that's joy is joy, right? When C.S. Lewis wrote, surprised by joy, that was real joy. Then the third is what? The third is seed that falls into soil that is not able eventually to produce fruit. Because why? Because of, because of the cares of this world, the worries of this life, and because of the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, I know the perversity of my mind and therefore yours. And I know that every single one of us sitting here says, well, I'm not rich. You are rich. You're the richest human being that's ever lived on the face of the earth. Because if you look across human history, it's unbelievable how wealthy we are. So give it up with this relative deprivation thing. Just because Adam's in this congregation doesn't mean you can pity yourself for being poor or Eric Rasmussen. We're all rich here. I'm rich, you're rich, every single one of us is rich. All right? So what is he talking about when he talks about the deceitfulness of wealth? Do you know that one of the things that is deceitful about wealth is that it, when you're rich, you have the ability of bypassing the difficulties that most people have to live with? I had a friend who was very wealthy, about 15 million. And that friend, every single time there was any discipline of his children, Every single time, he would subvert the discipline by spending money. If this school didn't work, then it was that school. If that school didn't work, then it was another school. Bounce, bounce, bounce. He constantly spent money as an attempt to subvert any discipline. In other words, he constantly spent money to make sure his children never had any pain.
One time I said to him, you know, I wish you had no money. Because I said, your money is the most destructive thing in your life, in your wife's life, in your children's life. Because it is always undercutting the discipline of God. The deceitfulness of wealth. And so you just spend money, and it keeps anybody from facing the fact that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Because it hides the fact that, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It hides the fact that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? The deceitfulness of wealth. Some of you, it's not that you use money to undercut the discipline of your children. It's that you use money to keep you from having to worry about the future. And some of you, it's a small amount of money, but that little bit of money keeps you from having to live by faith. <laughs> and so you just have a little bit of money. Do you know what my brother, brother-in-law Peter did? I just love Peter. And Peter has sins. Don't worry about it. But I, don't you love sinners? Really? So Peter, one of the many ways that Peter has, has, has shown me godliness is that Peter, when, when we were younger and we spent a lot of time with him, uh, he would be praying about having to meet some financial obligation. Maybe it was a mortgage payment, something like that. And after a while, I got to realize that Peter was always giving money away and always praying that he would have enough money to meet his commitments. And finally, I put two and two together, and I said to Peter, you know, what's this, what's this bit about praying for your mortgage or whatever the latest thing was? I said, didn't you just give this to this or something like that? And actually, he would never tell you what he gave, but I lived with him for a while, so I, I kind of knew things. And he said, Tim, what I try to do is I always try to stay ahead of my income with my giving. I always try to stay ahead so that I can never be secure. But I have to live on God. Listen, that's not what I do. And it's to my shame. But you should do that. There are people amongst us that do that. They can't stop. They can't stop giving away. They have the gift of giving. And it's just unbelievable how they have a finger, a thumb in the eye of the deceitfulness of wealth. You know who one of them was? Still is. Jay Lee. God bless Jay Lee. I'll never forget sitting in a restaurant with, uh, or maybe it was my office, with Woody. That's George, this man. And just incidentally, we're talking, and George mentions that Jay had just given him a hearing aid. You remember that? And everywhere I looked, I saw Jay Lee giving things away. What a man. Can you imagine how infuriating it probably was to his wife? 
Just about the time she felt secure, it was gone. It was gone. The deceitfulness of wealth. Whatever in your life causes you to have to depend on God, whatever it is, that's faith. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to cultivate faith. And so if you see Jesus saying here that for you, the risk is that the deceitfulness of wealth will keep the word of God from taking root in your heart, what should you do? You say, well, I'm poor. I say, well, so what? So is the widow, you know, the one that put the mite in? I mean, what, what a stupid showboating gesture, really. Where did that woman get off? I mean, you ever think about that? She knew Jesus was looking, and, and then she goes, and the least she could have done is hidden the scandalously small amount of money she put in that plate. I mean, it was, it was so insignificant, it wasn't worth leaning over to pick up. You noticed how you won't even pick up a dime now. Rita Cuffey, when she was at the last church, uh, they decided that they would only start a college ministry if people in the church would commit money to starting a college ministry. And so they asked for pledges. And so Rita wrote a letter to the money men and said that she would like to give, and I think the figure was $2 a week. And so they came and talked to her and told her they did not want her $2 a week, that it, it would require them to keep track of $2 a week, and it wasn't worth keeping track of. And my attitude is the world was not worthy of her. The world was not worthy of her. The deceitfulness of wealth. And the cares of this world. Do you know what happens when you get a house that instead of having a tenth of an acre, when we lived in Spicewood, has two and a half acres? You would not believe how much time you can spend on those two and a half acres. Right, love? And money. So, it may not be the deceitfulness of wealth directly, but the cares of this world. I'll never forget when Steve Berenzi was here. And Steve Berenzi was such a wonderful encouragement to me in, in being a shepherd. And he was a missionary's kid. His dad and mother had been church planters in Austria. And Steve was what I would refer to as a specimen of masculinity. He was about 6'4", do you think? And not adipose at all. Perfect condition. Good soccer player and handsome to kill for. Every woman that came along fell in love with him and then got angry at me because... 
he did not reciprocate. I got tired of it. I finally said, Steve, would you stop smiling in single women's faces? <laughs> I actually gave him a lecture about not smiling at women. I was so tired of it. And so when this church first started, Steve was our first missionary, 500 a month to Stephen Berenzi. What for? Well, he was getting his doctorate in English literature, and he one day was down at the laundromat in the East Side Plaza, and he was doing his laundry, and he was reading scripture, and he read where Jesus said, Mary, Mary. Or Martha, Martha, I'm sorry. You, you, you know how it goes. You, you, every woman here knows that text, right? You are, how does it go, busy about many things? Tell me how it goes. Come on, come on, speak up. How does it go? All right, doesn't anybody know? I could ask Tim or Ann Wagner. Stephen, don't you know how that goes? Where are you, Stephen? Oh, he's in the room. That's why. Anyhow, it goes something like, Martha, Martha, you're busy about many things. And then it says what? But only one thing is necessary. All right? Only one thing is necessary. And Stephen was in that laundromat, and he read, only one thing is necessary. And so he came, and he said, I'm going to go back to Europe. And he left his Ph.D. Now he comes out. He probably knew. Do you know that by heart? Martha, Martha. Does anybody here know it? Where is it, Stephen? I want to read it. Oh, come on. You know him a hundred times better than I do. I can't. Listen, every woman here memorize that. Because it is your life. You know that. Come on, don't you know that? Every woman thinks that the supreme act of godliness is efficiency. And it's never efficient to give yourself to the word of God. It's a waste of time. That's why women are opposed to taverns and to parliament, says Chesterton. Because they're inefficient. How does it help to sit around and talk? Can't you imagine what the women thought of the disciples when they were there with Jesus? What good is it? Isn't that what every woman would think? Come on, everybody's denying who we are. Yes, that's what every woman would think. And Jesus has a story about that. Only one thing is necessary. And Stephen read that, and he said, you know, when I was in high school, I had to go to a boarding school, Black Forest Academy, where there was no father for me, and so I'm going to give up my Ph.D. program, and I'm going to move over to Black Forest Academy, and I'm going to be a father to all those fatherless teenage boys. And he was our first missionary. And so he went over, and he did their laundry, and I remember getting emails from him saying, it's hard to feel, you know, a connection with only one thing being necessary when I'm here doing laundry for teenage boys. But isn't that beautiful? And then he started catechizing them. He became a nursing father to those boys. And what happened was when he came back, I think four years later, he tried to re-enter the Ph.D. program, but the major professor he'd been under had left, and no one else would pick him up. And I saw his transcript. It was straight A's all through his Ph.D. program. He was almost done with all his coursework. 
but they refused to take him. And I remember talking to him and saying, Stephen, file charges against them. Fight it. But he wouldn't do it. So he went down to a struggling little pathetic school called Columbia Bible College without a PhD. And I think he's still working on his dissertation. So if any of you specialize in the ability of helping a man to finish his dissertation, call Steve up and help him finish it. All right. What a wonderful example of a man at the prime of life and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of a PhD did not seduce him. So you be careful. You be careful. There's some things that need to be held way out there holding your nose because they're deceitful, right? Okay, now finally, one last point and we're done. Notice at the end, the seed that's good. One out of four, only one out of four. This last seed, I think, is, is even in the way Jesus talks about it, is a punchline. All right, look at what it says. The one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth. And listen, evangelicalism, which is a term that I use to refer to popular Christianity in America today, you should all know that. When I say evangelicalism, what I mean is popular Christianity. You know, the Christianity that has the American flag out in front. Okay, and I have nothing against the American flag, but I'm just explaining. All right. And so popular Christianity in America would say, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth, and this is how they would write that. You all know what I'm going to say, right? The way they would say that is they would say, bears fruit and brings forth some, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. But that's not how they'd say it. This is how they'd say it. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some 30, some 60, and some a hundredfold. You know? And what I say is I can't stand Christian music stations. I can't stand them because every song ends with a crescendo. It's like if you don't have the victorious Christian, if you haven't broke on through to the other side, it's like, what's wrong with you? And so, of course, we would write it some, and we sort of all change, you know, some 30, you know, poor, poor little boy, you know, but some 60, and our, you know, the engine. Poof, poof, you know, and some a hundredfold. Oh, you got the you got the you, you, you got the blonde bimbo screaming at the top of her range. You've got the brass. The crescendo of a hundredfold. 
And now the ushers will come forward and receive your offerings. <laughs> Listen, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is real. He's real. And Jesus is not patronizing the 30-fold. The Jesus is the one that said she gave more than all the rich men. He's patronizing her? No. Either he's patronizing her or what he's actually doing is making an ontological, epistemological, declarative statement, which is that actually her might was more money than the rich man. God has given every one of you a certain amount of talent. Your job is to make the most of that talent. And it is no shame if you've been given 30 talents. It is no shame if you produce 30-fold. Okay? As a matter of fact, I would say that in some ways, it's greater glory to God for the 30-fold person to produce 30-fold fruit than it is for the 100-fold guy to produce 100. And the reason is that it's very hard to act like you care when you know that you're going to be the bottom. You know, my attitude would be, well, I'm not going to try because old schmo over there is going to get a hundredfold, so what's the sense of me doing thirtyfold, you know? And so what Jesus does, and you know that the final paragraph, the final chapter, the final paragraph, the final sentence, and the final word are the ones with the emphasis. And so Jesus is giving the emphasis to thirtyfold here. And so what that teaches us is that if what you have is the ability to produce 30-fold, that glorifies God. You're the good seed. And stop moping about the fact that you're not the hundredfold. For heaven's sakes, if you could see the work of God as God sees it, everywhere you look, you would see the unbelievable potency of the widow's might. Okay, I know that because I'm up here, that we assume that this man is more talented. What you don't realize is that the man that preaches, the way he preaches is a function of the widows, okay? And that if the widow is not sitting there giving her 30-fold to the preacher, he will never produce 60-fold. And if he doesn't produce 60-fold, the people in the church will never do 100-fold. In other words, <laughs> okay, guess what? <laughs> We're all a part of the grand tapestry. Why do the pagans take our most precious things and pervert them? We're all a part of the quilt. And only when each panel of the quilt is sewn in is the quilt beautiful. And so the 30 is the back on which the 100 and the 60 are carried. Every single word, every placement of every word, every phrase of Scripture is profitable. Okay? And so what that means is if your gift is a southern drawl, 
a very warm, warm presence and the gift of gab to kill for, then you stand and are the doorkeeper of the church. And the whole church basks in your gifts, George. And if what you do is cry because you miss your husband, and I hear your crying when I'm praying, it strengthens me to preach. It strengthens me because eternity is burned into my eyeballs, right? And it seems like such a pathetic weakness, but it's strength. It's strength. And so listen, all of us have to give God the fruit. Give it to him. Stop being such a moaner and complainer about what gifts you don't have. If your gift is calling Mary Lee and saying, I'm crashing and burning, come help. Call her. Okay, I said that's the last thing, but I was lying. There's one more thing. I tell you, I have a love affair with Harris Tweed. I do. And I have a love affair with my wife sewing. Some of the most precious memories of my life are connected with my wife sewing. You ask her this, she'll tell you. It's true. When my wife sews... I can't tell you how joyful my heart is. It seems weird, but I just love creativity in my wife, you know? And so, um, because Harris Tweed is such a serviceable fabric, and because it comes from a place where they're still doing it by hand, and because deep inside of me there is maybe just a little bit of an agrarian, I got thinking about it, And I thought, you know, what my wife should do is make unstructured suit coats out of Harris tweed that are very cheap. Now, some of you can, can any of you see how my mind would work that way? Is that okay? All right. And so I said to my wife last night as we were leaving the garage, I said, you know what you should do is you should buy a bunch of Harris tweed and begin to make coats for men that are unstructured. Do you have any idea what they charge for those coats? It's just so perverse. And you could do it so cheaply. And my wife said, what to me? (laughs) My wife said to me, she said, and what is it that you would like me to stop doing? And so what my wife is doing is she's rejecting the deceitfulness of wealth. And what she's doing is she's producing 160 or 30, you make the decision. Where's the fruit in your life? Huh? Where's the fruit? Where is the fruit? Mm-hmm. Or do you just take? Hmm? And you know, Jesus never ended with a poem or a shaggy dog story. 
You know how he ended? He said, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Let's go to the Lord's table. In other words, Jesus took your will seriously and left it in your lap.